Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. 2022. There are already so many things that make this year significant. New Mexico is celebrating 110 years of statehood. We're entering year three in a pandemic. And here in the metro, we're also coming out of a year with the most homicides ever recorded in Albuquerque. You've probably heard others describe it by now, how COVID-19 in many respects has created this sort of perfect storm, disrupting businesses, industries, government systems, and more, all through job loss, illness protocols. All of it has caused massive delays. And one of the institutions really feeling that impact as well is our justice system. Yeah, the ups and downs of the virus have exacerbated a backlog of criminal trials across the state that were already facing delays pre-pandemic. So on this podcast, We've heard from the Bernalillo County District Attorney talk about the caseload his staffers are handling. We've also talked about the high profile case like Fabian Gonzalez and the Victoria Martin's murder pushed back almost six years since that crime. But what about the cases that don't always make the news? How is this backlog impacting those, you could say, lower profile everyday criminal justice cases? And we know there are many of them in New Mexico. And here to offer some insight is Jennifer Barella. She is Albuquerque's district defender and also Douglas Wilbur, felony division supervisor and trial attorney, both of you working with the Law Office of the Public Defender for New Mexico. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. First, to just set the stage, when I mentioned that criminal case backlog, is this entirely from COVID or are there other factors at play here? I think for here in the second, the majority of the backlog is is due to COVID because starting in end of March of 2020, all of the trials that were set basically got continued and we just started hearing some of them again. So I think they started up in maybe July, and then it got suspended again for a while when things, you know, got bad again. So there's been a couple of those. We had been since 2015, I believe, functioned under the CMO, the case management order here in Bernalillo County. So prior to COVID, our cases had actually been moving fairly um, quickly compared to other counties that didn't function under that role. So in, in Bernalillo County, I think we were um, the court was hearing in the second judicial district about five to six felony trials a week prior to COVID. Then it stopped for almost a year or more. And now they we've started to do a little bit, um, I think maybe one or two. So I would say here, this, the most significant backlog has to do with COVID. In other counties, it's been a little bit different because they, they weren't functioning under that very, uh, the, you know, the strict CMO deadlines. And of course, the CMO, just to really set the stage there. The case management order is what that stands for, right? Right. In case people don't know, it's, it's a timeline for the speeding along and making sure that trials aren't just languishing. People aren't sitting in jail or awaiting trials trial on charges for a long time. It was it was designed to help clear a backlog at a different time. Yeah. And it was it functions to to kind of push all of the parties to get, you know, cases um, done more quickly. And I think it was functioning extremely well prior to COVID. Douglas, you supervise a lot of attorneys on a team in the law office of the public defender. How bad is this current backlog for criminal cases? Do you hear it from your guys that you're supervising? Do you hear from them saying, man, I've, I've just got so many cases stacked up. How bad is this backlog? It affects literally everyone. I mean, certainly 
in the felony division, everyone has too many cases now. And I do hear it from my attorneys. And I personally as well have a lot more cases than I ever would have normally. Everyone's feeling it. It's difficult. And, you know, the hardest thing in a lot of ways is that each of those cases, like we have these big numbers, but each case is, you know, one person. Sometimes I'll have a couple of cases, but, you know, each of those is a person that we're representing that they need to get this resolved somehow. You know, it puts a lot of stress on us as defense attorneys because we're the ones, we, we represent individual people that, you know, whose lives are on hold or they're in jail. You know, they need to know what's going to happen. And and so it is difficult because the numbers, they go up and they go down very slowly, but there's always, you know, more coming in. And, and so that makes it difficult. And of course, it puts a lot of stress on the, you know, the clients as well, each of those defendants wondering, will they ever get a trial date? You know, someone that had a trial date set under the CMO right before COVID hit, then suddenly, bam, you know, there's, there's no horizon for them, you know? And so that can really, we all know that COVID's had a lot of mental health effects on everyone, but just imagine that you're waiting for trial on, you know, anything from a murder to like a drug possession case, and you don't know what's going to happen. Are you going to have a felony conviction? Are you not? Are you going to be able to get to trial? Are you going to have to take a plea because you're stuck in jail and, and you really want to get out and move on with your life, but you're sitting there for a while and you're feeling the pressure. So yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult for the attorneys, you know, and then all these cases, we have to keep track of everybody, you know, try to move them to a trial. Um, and then when the trial doesn't happen, you know, they just sort of, they become a pile, you know, and you don't, you don't ever want to be in a situation where the people you represent are turning into just a pile of files. Right. Cause that's, that's not what our job is. Our job is to represent people, you know, and, and get them a resolution. When we had the Bernalillo County DA talk about just the homicide record, he did mention that some of his attorneys, you know, who are prosecuting cases like this have caseloads of like, you know, 40 uh, very serious felony cases per prosecutor. What kind of caseloads are your public defenders handling at the moment? You mentioned you personally have more than you're used to, but can you quantify it all for us? How many are we talking? I would say overall, all caseloads are up. So we are structured where we have a trial line, which handles some of the less serious cases, but those are always more, right? Um, and I would say that the trial line attorneys' caseloads are averaging 70 to 80 per attorney. And then the supervisors who, um, because they have more experience and they're supervisors and can handle some of these cases a little bit, I don't want to say easier, <laughs> because of their experience, they actually have a higher caseload. So Doug's caseload is pushing you know, into the 90s. I think, and, and most of my supervisors are, are, you know, teetering on 90. Now our, our serious violent unit, which is um, the unit that would handle the homicides and some of the more serious cases, ideally we would like them to have, you know, 30-ish cases and they're all pushing up to 40 to 45 right now and even, you know, maybe higher. So they take more time, you do a lot more investigation and you have to have a lot more contact with clients. So for us, it's also building that relationship with the clients um, from the beginning, you know, in that trust um, so that, you know, when we come down to the end and have to make decisions, you know, they listen to us. And that's also been affected by the pandemic, our access to clients. Doug, tell us what, what's your caseload like? How heavy is it? So I actually just finished going through and sort of 
auditing my cases and closing out some that I was able to get resolved one way or another. I'm just under 90 right now, like about 88. But for me, that does include several cases back from when I was doing serious violent offenses. So I still have a couple murder cases, you know, criminal sexual penetration. So I have still some of those, you know, larger, more intensive cases that are still waiting, you know, for a trial. Those take a lot more work. And, and sometimes it's tough. I've done a lot of work on these cases, maybe two, even two and a half years ago, you know, getting it ready for trial. And then trial gets pushed off and, you know, you got to maintain contact with the client. Maybe you've pretty much finished the investigation, but you don't know when the trial is going to be. And that's sort of a whole separate situation, right? Then you find out you're going to have a trial in a month. You have to go back and relearn that case. You have to get really familiar with all the interviews you've done, all the documents you've reviewed and, and get it ready for a trial. Um, but that's hard when you don't know <laughs> what your horizon is for the trial. It's going to be three months away, a year away. And, you know, for a couple of years, we just had no clue on, on a lot of these. And so that can be that can be pretty tough. What makes up the majority of your caseload right now? I mean, I get every kind of felony case pretty much. So it could be anything from someone charged with a single count of drug possession, which, you know, is still a felony in New Mexico. Things like, you know, aggravated assault, which, you know, even a charge like that can range for anything from someone holding a knife while yelling at someone to something more serious, like an attempted battery, like shooting, but missing at someone. So, you know, even those, there can be a wide range of what's going to be involved. You know, aggravated batteries where there's actually an injury, kidnapping, false imprisonment, stolen motor vehicles, just being in a stolen car is a, is a felony crime. So there's, you know, the actual taking of it. Most of the line attorneys are doing with those lesser ones, but still can have a lot of investigation. Another one that comes a lot is uh, trafficking allegations, you know, where someone's in possession or sometimes it's just someone that has drugs on them and the police say, well, it's, it's too much drugs for just possession. So we'll charge you with intent to traffic. And we see a lot of those, you know, and that jumps it from, you know, a fourth degree felony, which is 18 months to nine years of jurisdiction. If they say it's a trafficking, or, you know, intent to traffic, there's a huge variety of stuff that comes in. We know a lot of hearings have been held virtually throughout the pandemic, but is this the same for trials? So the jury trials, which of course all felonies are going to be a jury trial, they're still in person. And that's one thing that uh, our Supreme Court has fortunately really held the line on. It really is a big deal. So having a, a jury trial and having, you know, 12 citizens come there and hear your cases is, is really the goal for every case where we're not trying to get, you know, a plea resolution. And so those have been in person and that's, it has made things tricky. Um, I've done a few of these as an attorney. It, it's amazing the difference that you feel actually getting to be in the courtroom physically. There's it's just not the same at all on Zoom. You know, having the judge there in person, your client is actually with you. And honestly, that's one of the worst things about virtual hearings is you're not with your client most of the time. You know, sometimes we can bring them into our office, but if they're in custody, those are always done by Zoom. We have to appear separately and we can't talk to our clients, you know, unless we take a break, call the jail if their phones are working. <laughs> Doing the jury trials, it's it's a different world, of course, than it was before COVID. Everyone is masked, which is weird, but that does change things. And obviously the spacing makes things very different too. You know, in normal times, you'd have the jury all sitting in their jury box, you know, those rows on the side, and then you'd have all this room for basically the public to come in. But now, essentially, the jury is spread out over the entire courtroom. Now you'll have 12 up, 12 to 15 people, you know, if you have some alternates 
And so that leaves a very small amount of space for observers. And, you know, jury selection, as, as you may be aware, is obviously different. It takes longer because we can only fit like 18 people at a time to do the, the questioning, the voir dire. And so it's been taking for serious cases, like a couple, like I've had a couple murder trials recently. It takes like two days because you might have to go through three or four panels of people to make sure you have enough potential jurors. You know, it basically adds at least a day to any trial now for what it would have taken before. So any any serious trial is probably going to take a full week. And then just trying to navigate, you know, what's it like to have a witness on the stand while they're wearing a mask? You know, do we feel like the jurors are going to be able to assess this person while they're testifying? Like, can't see their mouth. You know, do we, do we feel like they can tell whether they're credible or not? You know, I think we've sort of developed some sense of that, but it's different, you know, and as an attorney, you know, or anyone else, you look at the jurors and it's, it's strange because you can only see their eyes, you know, it's, it takes away some of, some of what we had before, but like I said, being there in person adds a whole lot that we wouldn't have if we tried to do it virtually. One of the things that has come with COVID we mentioned off the top is delays. And recently we saw one of New Mexico and Albuquerque's most high profile cases get another big delay, that of uh, the case against Fabian Gonzalez. He's accused in the death of 10 year old Victoria Martins. Uh, his case is now being pushed to summer due to prosecutors having exposure to COVID from a general sense, um, how many of the delays are we seeing as a result of COVID or staffing issues? Is this a, a common thing that you're seeing in, in many of your other cases, delays due to COVID and staffing issues? So I would say on the staffing issue side, we've been fairly, I want to say, lucky here at LLPD for not having a lot of that. But I can tell you with this new variant, I am concerned <laughs> because it's so contagious that we could get into that kind of position. Um, the courthouse has a lot of strict, um, much more stricter than most other places, rules about entering, even if you were exposed and not sick. So that's where kind of the staffing issues can come in. And like I said, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm not saying that it won't. For the other ones, there have been a lot of delays on jurors being exposed, <laughs> witnesses having COVID. I know Doug can speak on one case personally, he had to deal with that. How do those delays complicate cases? And I think it can really depend on the case. So the, the case Jennifer is talking about, it's it's interesting because it was also a homicide trial. Originally, you know, supposed to go back in 2020, but then things got suspended. We got set for a trial in September of last year. We were getting ready for it. And like I said, you go through the experience of sort of getting familiar with the case all over again, having done all the investigation, the attorneys have to sort of redo a lot of work because it's just not going to be in the top of your mind. So that that's hard. You know, you got to prepare things again. You got to, if we have witnesses, we have to see if we're still in touch with them, if we can find them. So we were all set to go in September. And then the week before the state filed the motion to continue because they didn't have contact with their only eyewitness. And so obviously that was a problem for us because, you know, from our perspective, well, we're ready to go to trial. You know, we've been waiting two and a half years. We would really like to have, have this trial. And the state said, well, we lost this guy. We want more time to find him. It then got set in November. They found their witness. He was actually arrested. He had some outstanding cases of his own. He got brought to Albuquerque and then the, we picked a jury. We spent two days and then the day we were supposed to begin testimony, he tested positive for COVID. 
And so we couldn't move forward with the trial because of course he's the only eyewitness the state needed him. So same thing, we ended up having to dismiss that panel of jurors that we spent so much time picking. Then we actually managed to get set for trial in December. And the same thing, we picked a jury, we went through it. We actually started testimony this time though, it ended in a mistrial for, for different reasons, not related to COVID. But I think it sort of shows, you know, this was our third trial setting, the second jury would actually picked, and then it ended in a mistrial. In normal circumstances, most of the time we would have gone the first time, probably. And if there was a mistrial, we would have, you know, it would have just been our first try. So now I've spent, you know, three and a half months trying to do this trial after it got set post COVID. And that's the other problem. When things like this happen, when there's a continuance because the state did something or someone gets COVID, and you've prepped for trial, you know, you spent days getting ready and then it's not happening or you have to do it again. It kind of takes over your life. And that's just one of my 88 cases. Now, most of them aren't going to take quite as much time, but you know, it can be, it's, it's a lot. That's got to be frustrating. It is. And I think that's another thing really that's affected everybody is part of it's the trial delay and part of it, it just feels less effective when you can't do other hearings in person. You know, again, like I said, you can't communicate with your clients even at something like a detention hearing. And this is gonna decide, you know, are they gonna be detained essentially indefinitely at this point? You know, are they gonna get be able to get out on conditions of release, go back to their family? And so that makes things hard, you know, and, and that I think leads into this whole idea of how it affects defendants, you know, because when they are detained, you know, under the CMO, typically even the most serious cases we know would be going to trial in like maybe 15 months. They had a horizon, they knew I'm detained, but I'm gonna get my trial. Now, even simpler cases takes two years sometimes. You know, we also understand in a general sense that someone is innocent until proven guilty. But to be clear, you know, a lot of the people that you all defend do commit serious crimes. What do you want people in the general public to know about why this is so important? You know, why is it important for some of these offenders who are accused of felonies to get a fair and speedy trial in our justice system? Well, I think that's something that all of us have a right to, all the citizens of New Mexico, right, have a right to a speedy and fair trial. That's fundamental in our constitution. It's the most important thing in the criminal justice system. And so I think it's important for the public to know that not all cases go to trial, a very small, small amount do, but there are just some that have to. You know, Doug said earlier, it's the most important part of the system and we have to find a way to get as many done as we can. Obviously, sometimes people, well, they plead, sure. And sometimes they should plead, right? Sometimes I think that's the right thing to do. And sometimes uh, they go to trial and they get convicted. A lot of times, though, you know, they'll go to trial and they sometimes are acquitted or they're not convicted of everything. You know, a trial can be very important to people, uh, you know. And also, sometimes a client just really, they want the chance to, maybe they want to testify, maybe they don't, but they want a chance to have the evidence actually put out there, you know, have the state actually present it. And, you know, having done many trials now, I can say that even sometimes when someone's convicted afterwards, even even those people that get convicted often feel better about it because they knew they had their trial. They can hear everything that, you know, what does the state actually have to present? And then, what happens on cross-examination? There's almost always, you know, more than anyone can fit into any news story. Just having all that come out and having people understand, you know, how do the police operate? Like what actually happened here? You know, there's a lot that we all learn. I learned so much from these trials. And I think that's one of the most valuable things. At what point, do, I guess, do you all think like we're going to have to, you know, sort of we've heard health officials say, 
learn to live with COVID. Maybe there's not a set date we can all look at on the calendar and say, okay, at this point, we can all go back to normal and things can resume as they used to. But at what point do you think the justice system really needs to take like a closer look at how this is operating? I think that time is now, quite honestly. Um, You know, and I think I've been, you know, in talking to, I work really closely with a lot of other criminal justice partners um, as leaders of, you know, as a leader of this office and the DA's office and the courts, we're all trying to come up with solutions um, to, you know, and ways to, to get back to that. But we're not, I feel like we're not ever going to get back to pre-COVID. Um, and so we have to start thinking outside of the box. Um, so, I mean, I think the time is now to try to look at that, but it is difficult because everybody has their own um, guidelines and constraints. Um, but, and the courts are really focused on getting the trials done right now. Their focus is the backlog. Let's get the trials done. And I, that's extremely important. And I agree with that. But I also think Doug has a very good point that we need to get back in the courtroom with our clients. Um, it's important for our clients. It's important for our attorneys and it's important for, you know, um, the justice system. How do we do that? I don't have all the answers, but I do think that's something that we need to start, start looking at. Well, thank you both. We really appreciate your perspective and, um, part of our society, no doubt is to have a functional justice system. So we've heard about criminal cases and the backlog that felony cases are facing in our court system. But what about on the civil side? There's a whole other faction of the law that's also facing some of these backlogs. Here to talk with us today about that is Dina Buchanan. She is an employment law attorney with more than 20 years experience on the civil side. So Dina, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. We know that there is a right to a speedy trial in a criminal case, but of course, a civil case is treated differently. You do most, if not all of your work in civil practice? Yes, I've I've worked only on the civil side for um, 23 years. So that's what we do. We do car accident cases and employment law mostly. So I mentioned that right to a speedy trial that exists in criminal trial, but that does not exist for civil trials. And what essentially happens to the civil cases that you have lined up when you consider how the pandemic has essentially pushed back a lot of trials? It it has been very difficult on the civil side um, to get our cases set up and ready for trial um, for a number of reasons. Um, in a lot of our district courts, the judges have mixed dockets. So, so they deal with family law cases, they deal with criminal cases and civil cases. And whenever judges have that mix, um, the civil cases go to the back of the line because those criminal defendants have that constitutional priority over our cases. So, you know, what we're seeing, what that means as a practical matter is that um, I know our judges and, and our court staff are working very hard during COVID, and a lot of them are remote or hybrid, so it's difficult to coordinate. But we are seeing um, one of my motions took over 10 months to be heard after we filed the motion. And wow. when, when you have a motion that is seeking something like, hey, I need this discovery from the other side, and we have a dispute about whether my doc, my client can get these documents or not, I can't do the next step of the case until I get those documents because I need that information to ask questions about that information. So if we're in that kind of situation, 
Um, and I don't get an answer from a judge for six months or a year, then my client can't even do the next phase of the case, let alone get ready for trial. That's not happening in all of my cases. I do have some judges who seem to be able to, you know, get some things heard a little bit more quickly. Um, and on, on the federal court side, those things seem to be heard much faster. They, they're remote, but um, because they have magistrate judges who help with those motions hearings, I think they're they're moving more quickly. You had mentioned it took 10 months to get an answer on one motion. What would you normally wait? I would say on average, maybe two to three months. You know, it's it, New Mexico has a challenging system to begin with for civil uh, litigants because, you know, in other states you have motion court. So you can file a motion and in two weeks you can go have a hearing. Um, that doesn't really happen too much in New Mexico, even without COVID, unless it's an emergency situation. Um, but really, we do normally have a more steady flow of getting those motions considered, um, even getting a scheduling order. I requested a scheduling order in a case a year ago, and I didn't. I haven't had a Rule 16 conference to set the schedule for the case to even give me a trial date, which is now going to be probably two years after we have that scheduling conference. Um, again, that's an extreme situation because I have other cases that I've had scheduling conferences in during COVID, but, um, I think every district and every judge has a different, you know, situation. And I think this has just really slowed down the process for some of my clients. I think as reporters, we get a sense too, from the community where sometimes people will reach out to us because they feel like, you know, no one's listening or they want to get their story heard or their case out there, evidence presented for whatever, you know, wrongdoing has happened to them. It sounds like similar in the civil world, you know, where somebody's trying to get a case resolved. How sustainable is this? It seems like the system is sort of broken and can't quite keep up. Like we just had a conversation with the public defender's office where they were talking about jury trials are still allowed to happen in person, but sometimes they can't even meet with their clients or meet the person they're representing. So how sustainable is this? Or do we need to figure out something different? I would love to see, um, the option of having a, a motion court system um, so that we could have these little preliminary matters um, taken away from maybe the trial judge or have a judge or two, maybe even a magistrate assigned in the state court system to help move these matters. Because sometimes the case will resolve once a critical motion is heard. You know, once a party finds out, oh, I'm going to have to turn over all this information, they might want to talk settlement at that point. You know, maybe they can um, agree to resolve major issues in the case to make the jury trial much shorter. I mean, there's lots of things that these motions could address and streamline. Um, and so I do think that that would be helpful. I don't know when we're going to ever get over this backlog unless we get more judges and more court staff um, or some alternative way to process some of these disputes that aren't full trials, um, but they are really critical to moving civil litigation. And I'm talking about, you know, car accident cases where people are injured and they're looking for treatment and compensation. And um, these employment cases where people are terminated and they're looking for damages or contract disputes that, you know, really mean a lot to the businesses involved with them. So, um, yeah, I, I am concerned about that. And I, I'll note, too, that our courts, our judges are using things like Google Meet to hold hearings. Um, 
I have a judge in Santa Fe who's been using Google Meet, and I've been getting hearings with him set within a couple of months, which is amazing. Uh, even a month, I think, at one point. So some of our judges have been using technology really effectively, and we can move those cases forward. I would hope that we continue to do that because when you think about it, I think it's more efficient for a judge to be able to have multiple short Google Meet or Zoom hearings in a day rather than have people filing into a courthouse where we have COVID protocols, then having to take the time to clear the courtroom and have the next people come in and worry about sanitization of the court and everything. Um, I'm really hoping that we see continuation of the use of technology and, and virtual hearings and proceedings on that kind of thing so that we can have more efficiency in the process. And I, I hope that it takes a little bit of burden off of the judges and staff too. You mentioned the types of cases these are. It may not necessarily be as relatable for people to understand exactly what a civil case is. Sometimes people might just go, oh, it's just people asking for money. You homed in there on, on the idea that, that civil cases too, they matter. You know, it, it's really hard because um, I happen to have right now um, several employment cases that deal with pretty extreme versions of sexual harassment. I mean, including things like sexual assault. One of my cases involved a rape. Um, and I am, I'm working with these women who it took so much for them to come forward to even come to me and bring this lawsuit and then have to be examined and have to be, you know, deposed and they're waiting for justice. And for them getting to trial or getting their case resolved is a matter of someone saying, yes, yeah, something bad happened to you. And yes, you deserve justice here. You're right. And, and we need to send a message to this person who did this to you or this employer that it's wrong. So it is ultimately about money in the civil side because, you know, that's that and injunctive relief, you know, getting someone ordered to stop something. Um, that's all we can do in civil court. But there is a, a very strong issue of justice and what we do too and the message that we send to the people that are engaged in these um, practices so how much of the sort of backlog or the delays that you're seeing on the civil side can you attribute to the pandemic or, or you know illnesses or staffing shortages are, are you feeling the impacts of that or is it just that criminal cases are taking a priority and those were put on hold for so long therefore you're sort of on the back burner on the civil side. With the civil cases, it seems to be a bit of both. Um, you know, it, you'll hear anecdotally that, you know, um, maybe a court staff might have gotten sick and they're not available for a while. And so then that person can't assist the judge in getting something scheduled. Um, you know, you have different situations like that. And we don't always know because we're not really allowed to speak to the judges outside of formal proceedings, and it's not really appropriate for us to have those conversations with them. Um, but what I am seeing is that there's just been a general slowdown. I mean, for a while, things were fairly, I won't say they ever closed, but they really did slow. Um, and I think things are opening up more and things are moving more, but now we just have a lot, you know, we have a lot happening. And, and I really don't know about jury trials, because, you know, when we do get to jury trial, people are sitting all together as a jury on one part of the courtroom. Well, that's really important for advocacy and for the jurors evaluation of the evidence, I think, 
because the jurors sit as one. They have the same general perspective of the witnesses because they're very closely situated with the witnesses. They can hear them clearly and see their faces and they can see the judge and hear the judge. And then they look at um, defense counsel and plaintiff counsel who are sitting at tables kind of in one area of the courtroom. Well, with jury trials now, the jurors are spread out all around the courtroom and all around, sometimes behind the attorneys. Um, and so they can be kind of far from the witness. They can be far from the attorneys. They may not see things like facial expressions and even hear things clearly. And so I kind of wonder if the jury can function in the same way um, with all the COVID precautions that we have. And, you know, I, I've heard of mixed results during COVID from jury trials, but I've definitely heard of a lot of results that were sort of puzzling. And I wonder if that had anything to do with it. It seems like there's a, you know, a time and place where having virtual hearings or that face to face with a judge over a motion, like you said, can be really helpful. But there is also like, you know, the sort of need to to have things like they normally used to be done. Do you find that we can strike a balance here in a continued pandemic? Well, I'm hoping we can, you know, I'm hoping I've, I've heard that in some jurisdictions they're doing zoom jury trials. I don't think that that's happened in New Mexico and I don't know if it, if it makes sense. Um, in some ways the jurors would have the same perspective of the witnesses you don't have to wear masks. They can hear them maybe better. And then they'd be put in a Zoom room to deliberate. Um, I've heard that it works. I, I haven't experienced that myself. And I know that there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, it, because you, you can't make sure that the jury is sequestered as easily as you can in a courthouse where they're escorted by a, a bailiff or court personnel back and forth from a jury room um, that's secure to the courtroom. Um but yeah, these these in-person trials, if the jury can't all have that same perspective, I think is a challenge. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe if we can, some, some other jurisdictions I think have done dividers between each seat within that jury box so that they've got, you know, some protective measures kind of put around each juror, but they can see and hear. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a challenge. And I think if we can if we can keep the cases moving in the, the motion and the, the pretrial practice, I think that helps. And then it also encourages cases to settle. You know, on the civil side, less than 10 percent of cases actually go to trial. So, I mean, it's far less than 10 percent actually now. So you have to realize that if you can keep those cases moving efficiently, you're going to kind of get them to some sort of resolution. Um, more quickly. Anything else that we've missed that you think, you know, people should know about? Everyone needs to have some grace. I mean, I think everyone in this system is working really hard to try to keep things moving. And I know our clients often just want answers. You know, they want an update and it's, it's hard to tell them sometimes, no, I haven't heard back. Um, sometimes it's because opposing counsel might be out sick or their staff might be out sick or they're short staffed. And, you know, it's, all around in every aspect of what we do from dealing with our experts, same thing, um, you know, dealing with kind of scheduling of things is hard. So I would just say, just try to be patient. Um, I am sure that at some point we will work through the backlog. 
Um, but I think we need to be creative about how to do it. And I would love to see some um, some suggestions coming out of the judicial branch of, you know, hey, let's start these programs to take some of this pressure off of the system. A special thanks to Jennifer Barella and also Douglas Wilbur of the Law Office of the Public Defender in New Mexico. We also want to say thanks to Dina Buchanan in the civil attorney world from giving us her perspective there as well. We'll have another episode for you next week. In the meantime, feel free to contact us. I'm at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com and gburknm on Twitter. Also visit our website, krqe.com slash podcast. And I'm chris.mckee at krqe.com and then also chris McKee TV on Twitter. Thanks for listening.